Welcome to Make It Happen. My name is Tom Dalton. Each episode will have an inspiring guest tell their story of overcoming obstacles, never settling, and making it happen. Don't forget to share, subscribe, and review. So grab a coffee. Hope you enjoy the pod. Let's go. Okay, so welcome to Making It Happen. Uh, my name is Tom Dalton. I'm delighted to say we're on episode number 54. Been a slow start of 2023 for the podcast, but we're getting back on it, as I say. Mm-hmm. And I'm delighted to say uh, the next guest is someone I've been meaning to have on for a while. And I'm really excited to hear his journey, hear his story, hear uh, all about the breadth. We're going to be talking about breeding, which we're currently doing, I suppose, without thinking about. So <laughs> I'm really looking forward to get into it. Now, I've, I hope I get his name right. Uh, Neil Omerku, is, is that correct? Perfect. Thumbs up. I get a thumbs up there. So, <laughs> uh, if you don't know Neil, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you've heard of him as a uh, Breed with Neil or the Breed with Neil podcast. Um, he spent most of his he- adult life helping improve people's health, feel calmer, and open to loving as you are. He's a wellness expert with over 20 years' experience. He's the author of the best-selling book, which I need to get my hands on, of Blissful Breath. He's a certified level three Wim Hof method instructor. And just so you know, level three is the highest level expertise awarded to instructors. There's lots of other stuff going on there we're going to jump into. There's Recky, former international athlete. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And uh, congratulations. You say 54 episodes into the podcast. 54. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's good going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Many people start, but they don't continue. Yeah, exactly. And I had a, I had another previous guest and he said to me, he's like, he he is a pod, very successful podcast himself. And he goes, he just made a point. He goes, someone's like, oh, when do you start tracking the podcast? And he goes, tell me when you've done a thousand episodes, then start tracking it. And I was just, <laughs> I think sometimes just about the reps and putting the work in and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, we're I'm very fortunate. It's, it's, it's a hobby and it's a bit of a passionate project of mine. And uh, I love the art of conversation and talking to people. Um, so Listen, let's jump into your story. So just talk to us a little bit about growing up, background, where you're from. Yeah, so I was born and raised uh, in North County, Dublin, on the beach there in Port Marnock. Um, so the cold and the sea have always been a huge part of my life. Uh, and I suppose my life can be divided into two very distinct kind of phases. The first phase was this, um, this drive, this urge to be a professional basketball player and and all the commitment that goes into that and playing for Ireland and, you know, committing your life to that, that to that kind of um, that level of performance. But during that time, even though basketball was definitely the focus, um, uh, since I was a child, I always had these quite big questions ro- rolling around in my head. You know, the qu- you know, questions lots of people have, like, who am I? Like, what is this existence? Who are you? How, you know, what is it to be human? Um, and as I progressed up through the international teams when I was younger, these questions got louder and louder and louder. And I got to a point that I actually had to, I had to do something about it. I had to stop playing basketball. I had to surprise everybody and give up uh, this pursuit of being a professional basketball player and instead go off and look for the answers to some of these questions. Um, and that's where... My, my the journey from basketball went into martial arts, went into yoga, went into meditation, went into you know breathing along the way and and all these types of types of things and um, I suppose from an older, wiser position many, many, many years later, I understand that the study of anything 
including basketball, the study of anything can lead you to the answers to these questions. But, you know, I was a young man then and I felt basketball didn't have the answers. And Neil, just on that, I know sport can be a big driver for a lot of people. Was education, it's probably a two-part question, was education important to you or was it just get me to train and get me to basketball, time on the court? Um, and that was your driver to become a fresh professional athlete? Um, education was always uh, important. My, my parents are, um, my, my dad never finished secondary school. But then he had to go back, you know, and he, he clawed his way back and did his leaving cert and then, did, you know, got his degree and got his master's degree. You know, so the, so the pursuit of education in formal ways and informal ways is always a big part of, of our household. Um, and I kind of put these restrictions on myself. I, I said to myself, look, if I, if I put the work in in school, then I can go play basketball. You know, I kind of put that on myself. So, um because I always felt that we have to be rounded people and lots of the athletes that I have met, met a long time ago and, and even now, athletes are, are a bit more rounded now. They understand that their professional career might be very short and they want to have, you know, so education is a great way to, to give us more options. But I still like learning is probably one of my you know, most important things in my life. And uh, I, once I did my master's many years ago, I kind of had, I kind of gave up on formal learning in, in you know, I, I wasn't going to pursue a PhD, but I just love learning all the time. Um, and I think that curiosity has taken me to some interesting places. And Neil, was it, I assume you growing up, you must have been super passionate about basketball. Mm. That must have been highly challenging to, I know, put down the basketball, hang up your basketball shoes. Like, talk to us a little bit about that transition. Mm. So, you know, like anybody who, who, who is that obsessed, I would say, with, with, with a sport, it is your identity. It is everything. You know, if you ask anybody I was in school with, oh, there's Neil, the second thing out of their mouth will be, oh, he's the basketball player. You know, that, you know, that, was, that was it. Every, every waking moment was consumed by that. But as I said, these questions in my mind started to get louder and louder. And I remember being in America one summer and uh, I was at these basketball camps in America. And I was sitting, sitting down and I opened the window and this beautiful warm breeze came in the window. And I had this kind of, I had this thought about how in America, I was on the East Coast, you can get in your car and you can drive through America to all the many different places, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And in my mind, I had this kind of, this whole continent was spread out in front of me. And uh, I was thinking, I have to go play five hours of basketball now. And that was the, one of the moments where I thought to myself, it felt it was beginning to feel like a chore. It wasn't a thing that I love to do. And this sense of adventure to go out across that continent and to see what was out there and to go beyond the Pacific and go through Asia and to find out what they, they were all about, that started to get louder and louder. Um, but it was a very difficult decision to, to put the basketball down because um, I even played maybe the last year or two. I had the, the passion for it was gone. I was going through the motions, which is like torture. You know, it's like torture when you're, when you're kind of, you, you, you have to go out and do this thing, but you no longer have the heart for it. Um, but I had one thing on my list. I wanted to play for the, I was quite young at the time, but I wanted to play for the senior national, national team. So I was, I think I was the youngest player at the time to make the senior national team, but my heart was not in it. But it was like a tick box 
once I play, I think I got in the first term, I got maybe five caps for the senior team. And that was it. I was done. The box was ticked. I was finished. Um, so by the time it came to putting the basketball down, I was ready first. But it was, you know, being a young man and not really having the words to describe what was going on inside me and not being great at talking about things like that. Anyway, um, the people around me had no idea. Like you know, my friends barely knew, my parents barely knew. So all of a sudden it was a big decision. Jesus, you know, he stopped playing basketball. But to me, it had been a gradual thing from that moment of looking for the adventure, looking across America, you know, accepting that I had to go find the answer to these questions to put to actually the time when I stopped. Um, it was gradual for me, but as I said, not very articulate back then. So it was a shock to most other people. Yeah, very interesting. And Neil, on that life after basketball, was it a career step for you next? Or I suppose, when did you find martial arts, Reiki? Was that always going on in the background? And then I suppose on to Wim Hof? Yeah. Um, so I was, I was lucky, you know, you could describe my parents as kind of old hippies, you know, so there was always yoga in the house. There was always meditation. Dad was always doing martial arts. So it was always there. Um, so when in my mind, I knew I was going to stop playing basketball and I knew the next step was going to be into martial arts because um, many martial arts have at their foundation a philosophical underpinning, you know, so that it might be Buddhism or it might be Taoism. So there is a kind of a, a spiritual philosophical underpinning in most martial arts. So I felt that the going into martial arts was something that I was really interested in because it still was a very physical practice it was still lots of hard training which i needed but it also had this this depth to it um so i started this is this is the days just before mixed martial arts was really a thing so i started training in all different types of martial arts in ireland and john cavanagh who famously now is conor mcgregor's coach John Cavanaugh was one of the first people to put together what is now mixed martial arts in Dublin. So he was bringing together judo people and boxing people. And so I joined in that as well. Um, and, and then I read a magazine, uh, GQ magazine, or one of those magazines back then. And there's a, there's a temple in China, the Shaolin Temple, and they have these famous fighting Shaolin monks. And they would argue that martial arts of all types sprang up from the Shaolin Temple in China. And they were sending one of their uh, best fighters, who was like a combat champion, four-time world champion, to London to set up the first ever Shaolin temple outside of China. So I read this in the magazine and I was like, right, I'm done, going to London. So off I went to London to, to train with them for, for four or five years. And you know that was when I really understood um, the breath because I went to learn to fight. And they taught me how to breathe and how to meditate. And that was really the first time this whole world opened in front of me. And did you go when you jumped into London? Was you thinking, I'm going to be physical, strong, physical, physical? And then was it just a moment where like, physical is one part of it, but the mind and the breath is an even bigger part of it? That's it. You know, um, I was going for the hard training. I was going to for the sparring. I was going to enter competition. You know, I had still that mentality, you know, from the from that competitive mentality was still in there. I had to be the best at whatever I was going to do, um, which drains the joy out of things sometimes, you know. But they could see that in me. 
and they they were you know they were the first thing that they had me do is every you know before we did any training i had to sit down and meditate for 20 minutes like you know what they didn't even tell me what to do they steve Rianzi, who was the one of the main monks there he just come in and he just sit down and we just had to copy what he was doing we had no idea what he was doing so we just close our eyes like this and sit there for 20 minutes and this goes went on for years you know wow. they don't tell you they don't tell you what to do they you have to find a way to do it and then we go and do the the physical training and after we do the breathing um so that then over the couple of you know over the five or six years with them as the months and years passed i was drawn much more towards the meditation much more the the breathing fascinated me how we could be doing these incredibly difficult physical exercises like there was this ramp that ran up um one side of where the temple was it's in north london like in, in the middle of this you know urban area and we'd be sprinting up and back down this this cement ramp and crawling on the back and up and raining it's freezing cold and you start to feel exhausted and then they'd stop us and they'd get us through this very simple breathing in and exhaling and breathing in and after four or five of those breaths I felt refreshed and we could go train again and i was thinking back to my days when i was playing for ireland and there was no slight on, on, on the coaches or anything then, but there was no understanding of how the breath could change our performance or how it could help us recover or gain a sense of control in, in, in difficult situations. So the breathing with the monks started to fascinate me. The, the, the meditation with the monks started to fascinate me. And it started to unwind me a little as well. I, I, I realized that not everything has to be a competition. You know, that, you know, I had to slow down, you know, all these kind of deep, all these deep things came from the breathing, the meditation, the breathing, the physical side of it became less important. And so after London, what happened next? Did you come home with this? I'm going to bring this to Ireland or what was next for you? Yeah, I suppose within that, within that time, um, because of the training with them and because of those insights about slowing down and, you know, life isn't a competition, and uh, I started to then explore loads of different ways that we could heal the body naturally, loads of different ways that we could improve our focus and our, and our attention, meditation, all, you know, you name it, I was, I was doing it. Um, and, you know, another big part of that is Josie, my, my wife, we had moved to London together. We were married. And, you know, as part of the, the move to Shaolin Temple training, I, I as well stopped drinking, you know, which was a big thing uh, for a young man at that stage. But in London, it didn't matter, you know, because loads of people didn't drink, you know. Mm. Um, so when I came back to Ireland, I was a very, very different person, very different person. Um, and I was dead set on continuing to explore breathing, continuing to explore the mind. And, um, you know, that led me to loads of very interesting things and eventually then to, to Wim Hof. And I, I, I'm dying to get this out of you. Uh, my cousin Alan told me a great story about, I think you were walking up the side of a mountain in a pair of shorts in the snow weather. But for anyone that's listening that doesn't know Wim Hof, will you just give a little bit of a background, Neil, if you don't mind, please? Yeah, of course. So Wim Hof um, is from the Netherlands. And at one stage, he held about 25,000 world records for doing like superhuman things, like being encased in ice for hours 
running uh, a, a marathon barefoot above the polar ice cap with no clothes on except this, a pair of shorts. And then doing the, then doing the reverse, running a marathon bare, or well, you know, not sure who's barefoot, but running a marathon with no protection or no water in the African desert. You know, so like all these incredible things. And what he was most famous for was that he climbed up Mount Everest with no clothes except shorts, no equipment, no oxygen. Um, and eventually when he came down, you know, Wim Hof himself would say that the reason he did these superhuman things was that he was so strong and healthy and focused from it. just a very simple way of breathing and combining it with cold. And he felt that this very simple breathing and cold combination had made him so strong, made him, you know, his immune system so strong, and that he could use this way of breathing to voluntarily improve his immune system. Um, but of course, that was thought to be impossible. So when Wim went up Mount Everest and he came back down, uh, the scientists at Radboud University in the Netherlands said to him, OK, look, you've done these unbelievable things. You're talking about that you can improve your immune system, which is impossible. Come in here and let's test it. Maybe you have something to show us. Uh, so they brought Wim in and they injected him with a form of E. coli. And that should make you sick you know, pretty quickly. Yeah. He was able to use the breathing techniques that he developed to fight it off. And after two hours, he had no symptoms. And it was the wow. first time in recorded history that they had somebody who could voluntarily improve their immune system uh, at will. And then they, they, then the, the next question is then, but you know, when you, you prove the rule, you're the exception, you know, you can run up Mount Everest. No one else can do that. So of course you can do something like that. Can normal people do it? So again, they ran this groundbreaking piece of scientific research where the Wim trained a group of people. They brought them in and they injected them with a form of E. coli. They used the breathing and all of them could fight off the, the, the symptoms. So, you know, so it really, so Wim is an amazing character that he has figured this thing out, drawing on ancient yoga, ancient different practices. But he has also, he has also dragged science along with it and has forced science to test it. And they have had unbelievable results, unbelievable results. So, um, so I heard Wim talking on a podcast and that really drew me in is that, you know, one, it's simple. Every, nearly everyone can breathe in this very simple way. We all have to deal with the cold, you know, so when we learn to use it, it can be this great force for good in our life. But also there's all the science to back it up. There's no speculation. And talk to me about that. You jumped over to Poland, am I right, to do one of his yeah. courses? Talk to me a little yeah. bit about that, maybe when it clicked or you were like, wow, this yeah. stuff works. So um, back in, like, this is probably seven years ago, I think, uh, I went to, to train with him to be an instructor. Now, things have improved a lot since and changed a lot since those days. It was very raw. It was very, you know, it was very raw, to say the least. Um, but one of the last, it was a year-long training, and the last part of it, we went to Poland for a week up in the, on the Czech-Polish border, these big Polish mountains, you know, wintertime, absolutely freezing, minus 10 degrees at night snow and ice everywhere and one of the last tasks we had to do was we had to get into our shorts and our boots and we had to climb this mountain Mount Sneszka and anybody from Poland forgive my pronunciation and they always correct me when I say that but it is it is this giant mountain um it takes about two and a half hours to get up and back two and a half hours back down 
So we were climbing up the mountain. You know, when you and you when you first take off your clothes in that type of weather and the snow and you know it, it's immediately shocking. You know, you, you your mind immediately is thinking, what am I doing? How can I do this? You know, it's you know it's painful. The wind is painful. But once you start focusing on your breath and calming your breath down, the brain starts to listen to the lungs. The body starts to relax. The heart rate goes down, and we find this this place where we are we're calm despite the pressure. So as you start to walk up and walk up about about an about an hour and a half up there's this there's a shoulder like if you imagine the mountain like a person there's a shoulder a plateau and i got to the plateau and i took you know took a moment and i looked back and it was a winter wonderland snow everywhere you know snow falling and i was just there in my shorts looking out and i wiped sweat off my face because it was starting to drip into my eyes and then i looked at my hand and i was looking at the sweat thinking what the fuck's going on here i'm standing in freezing weather and i am sweat i'm not even i don't even have a t-shirt on and i'm sweating and in that moment a, f- a few things struck me in that moment it struck me that we are all capable of more than we think we are we are all capable of climbing up that mountain in our shorts in the snow and being okay and being actually not even just okay sweating you're so hot, you're sweating. And in that moment when I realized that for me and for you and for everyone that we're capable of more than we think we're capable of, there was also a little bit of fear in there because then I was thinking, oh no, I have to go home now and do all those things that I you know, I convinced myself I couldn't do. And, you know, and that was a huge, huge thing to realize. And you know, the experience on the mountain changes you i got to the top of the mountain after about two and a half hours and i've never really come back down off that mountain you know everything changed up there i was a different person when i came back down um, never put on the clothes again shorts and t-shirts all year around something happened up there i'm not sure what mm-hmm. but, you know there's loads of signs to show us that once you once you start acclimatizing the cold regularly you know anyone who jumps in the sea knows that your body starts to change and over long periods of time, um, we have to learn how to deal with the cold. You know, we can't avoid it. So once we use it as a force for good in our life, it can dramatically improve our health and dramatically improve our strength and our mood. Uh, there's a magic in the cold once we accept it. Well, fascinating, brilliant story there. Thank you for sharing. Um, Neil, just for any of the listeners, um, if they haven't picked up your book, and we're going to touch on that now. I know I've worked with some people and they're like, Tom, uh, meditation's not for me. I find it so difficult to get in and calm and I can't. And I, I tried this app and it does or it doesn't work X, Y, and Z. Is there anything basic you could recommend to any listeners just to start, I suppose, something small, any tips or tricks to maybe if they're looking to get into maybe do something with their breathing? Yeah. So it's funny you should say that about meditation because at our workshops, we nearly have Every time we have an event, at least a couple of people come up to me and say, I, you know, afterwards, I can't meditate. I find it really difficult. By the way, everyone finds meditation difficult. But the breathing brings us to that state of deep calm in ourselves, whether or not we, you know, whether or not we are paying attention or not. You know, so when we're doing our breathing exercises, of course, if we're paying attention, you know, it's great. But it's not like meditation where we're wrestling with the mind. At the beginning, when we start doing even a very simple exercise, which I'll show you now in a second, the mind can wander off. That, that, you know, that's okay. 
because if we're moving the lungs in a, in a very specific way, the brain pays attention. Obviously, the brain is getting trillions of messages from the body all the time, but it pays attention to the messages from the lungs more than anything else. Because if there's a problem with the lungs, if they stop working, you know, there's a serious problem in the body. So if our lungs start working in a way that's calm and slow and gentle, the brain starts to pick up that signal and then it, it communicates to the rest of the body. You know, we're okay, we're safe. So the lungs have this incredible power. Really how we breathe is how we are. How we breathe is how we feel. So if we're breathing calmly, we feel peaceful and calm. If our breathing is erratic, that's how we feel. We feel stressed. So likewise, if a person is feeling stressed, their breathing is like that. But the beauty is we have this relationship with our breath that we can change it at any time. So even if we're feeling overwhelmed and our breathing is out of balance, we can in that moment change how we breathe and then change how we feel. And a really simple way to do that is if anybody's listening now, is just take a gentle inhale and then slowly exhale all the way out with their mouth. And we'll do two more of those. So breathing in and slowly exhaling all the way out, softening as you, as you exhale. Last one, breathing in and breathing all the way out. Now the science shows us that this simple exhale, this long exhale, is the most effective and fastest way to get us from a state of feeling agitated or stressed or in emergency to feeling calm and safe again. So when we start to move our lungs and we start to push that air out, the vagus nerve starts to trigger in the back of our head. And it, one of its jobs is to get us from a state of agitation to a state where we feel calm again, safe again. So in that movement of the lungs, not long exhale, vagus nerve triggers, heart rate drops, body starts to soften. And again, we have control over how we feel. So even that long exhale is something that people can practice anytime, you know, anywhere. You know, and in, in my book, The Blissful Breath, you know, we, we focus on that vagus nerve br breathing uh, a lot because it is, it is something anyone can do at any time to help them feel in control and calm again. And we all need a bit of that in our lives. Brilliant. Um, Neil, so talk to us, I suppose, current. You came back from Wim Hof. You start delivering workshops. There's an appetite. People wanted this. You see, you start seeing the impact it has. Talk to us a little bit about that and then just lead us into the book, please, Neil. Yeah. Um, I suppose when I was away in, in the year, being a Wim Hof, training to be a Wim Hof instructor, um, I was... I had to practice on people, you know, I had to, friends and family were dragged in, stuck in ice baths, you know, all that kind of stuff. And in that preparation, I could get a sense that there was a change happening where things, where people were looking for answers to questions, you know, maybe like I had been a long time ago. Things like yoga were becoming more mainstream, things like meditation and mindfulness were becoming more mainstream. And so by the time I finished my training with Wim Hof and I came back, um, we had the first ever Wim Hof Method workshop actually in this, this room and this room here open up in this room here in, in our house. And I put it up, uh, it, was, it was in a in January and I put it up a couple of weeks before and it sold out like that. Boom, immediately sold out. So there was an appetite. People were looking for things to help them. 
Wim Hof, we, no one had heard of him on that stage. You know, it was very, you know, very kind of on the fringes. But it started to grow quite quickly. And maybe they hadn't heard of Wim Hof, but they were interested in breathing and they were interested in breathing and the cold. And um, so, so since then, whatever it is, six years ago, things have just exploded. Things have exploded. Now, COVID accelerated that, that seeking in people for things to help them, looking for ways to deal with difficult situations. Know, around here, everyone was jumping into the sea. You know, they looked to the sea as this way of dealing with it. So COVID has even accelerated people's search for answers even more. And of course, the Wim Hof method is, is arguably one of the most effective ways that you can dramatically improve your health and your mood and your strength. So um, things just took off really quickly. And then the book talked, you just obviously wanted to share your message again and put the content down. Talk to us a little bit how that came about. Yeah, so so in my in my years, you know, starting to teach people, what I realized was that sometimes there's different ways of breathing for different situations. The Wim Hof method breathing, probably the best breathing you can do. It's lying down, it has amazing effects. But I wanted to know what kind of breathing I could do when I wasn't lying down, you know, so if I was, if I was doing something on TV and before the TV cameras rolled and those feelings of like heart rate flying through your chest, how do I, how do I deal with those? Um, how do I help people to sleep better, you know, sleep better through breathing? How do I help them improve their performance? How do I help them? And I, when I say performance, I mean performance as in on the field or on the court performance, but also the person at home who has to perform looking after children, you know, all of, all of everything that we do is, is a performance. So that, that led, led me to, you know, go off and find um, other amazing teachers of breathing and to really, you know, Wim Hof kind of brought me to the door of the power of the breath. And he was like, now go explore it, you know, and it is a huge field of, 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 of a subject. And, what I what I always want to do is I want to be able to teach people ways of breathing that are for everybody. So if you're pregnant, you can do this breathing. If you're a child, you can do this breathing. If you're old, you can do this breathing. Simple, safe ways of breathing that just changes for the better. And that's where the blissful breath come, comes from. So the blissful breath, the book is about, you know, very simple ways of, of breathing to deal with very specific things in our life. And to encourage people even to spend a couple of minutes every day just on these very simple breathing exercises, any breathing exercise, just focus on your breath for a few minutes. By fo- even when we place our attention on our breath, it changes. Even if that is all we do in a difficult situation, if we just pay attention to our breath, our breath slows down, we start to slow down, everything starts to change. So the blissful breath is really... Uh, a very simple way of trying to encourage people to take a few moments every day uh, to breathe, breathe with, with a little bit of intention. And that can have massive beneficial effects for us. Brilliant. Before I throw some of the quick fire questions at you, um, talk to us a little bit about if someone was going to take part in your workshop, what, what, what are, is there, what expectations should they have or should they just go in with yeah. not knowing anything? Most people come to our Wim Hof uh, workshops a little bit afraid, you know, because obviously 
We're teaching them how to breathe. We're teaching them how to, you know, move and breathe. We're teaching them how to approach the cold. But then there's a big ice bath at the end of it, you know, and, and they, they get into the ice bath. But they don't, what they don't kind of realize is by the time they get to the ice bath, they have learned all the skills that they need to deal with the cold. Because really, obviously, you know, the cold has all these amazing scientific benefits, proven benefits. It improves your immune system, reduces inflammation, reduces pain, all those amazing things. But really, the cold represents all the things we're struggling with. The shock, the stress, the grief, whatever it is we're struggling with. So by the time they get to the ice bath, they have learned to use their breath to deal with whatever it is they're struggling with. And the cold is just there to, you know, to test them, to teach them a little more. So they get out of the ice bath and they feel like superheroes because they have found a way to feel calm despite 40 kgs of ice sitting on top of them. And that's the real value of what we're doing, is that when the person leaves, they have proven to themselves, like me halfway up the mountain, they have proven to themselves that they are capable of way more than they think they are. And that the key to getting to those, to unlocking that potential is just, it's just the breath there all the time, just learning to use that. Um, so I, I, I think it's a great privilege to, to witness people coming in, feeling that, that fright, feeling that terror in some cases, and then to witness them when they step out of the ice bath and they feel alive and they feel powerful. That to me is one of the great privileges of the work that I do. Brilliant. I'm sold. I'm I'm signed up now to the next. Uh, <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, this is probably you probably have a couple of answers to this, but um, is there a quote or a piece of advice that stands out to you? I'm sure you've had some amazing coaches over the years in basketball and sport. I'm sure the Shaolin monks, I'm sure Wim Hof. Is there anything that would be a bit of a, a mantra for you or a quote or a, a piece of advice you'd always go back to? Yeah, slow down slow down my, my nature has always been I don't know if it was a product of uh, you know of being an athlete or was the reason I was an athlete was that I was fast everything was fast on the course everything you know and that serves you maybe at a certain time but the monks everyone used to say to me just slow down you know and once once I slow down then I can appreciate everything then I can see the beauty in even mundane things. Then I can follow, listen to my breath. Then I can surrender to what's happening. If I'm flying through life, I can't, I can't do that. So um, the process of slowing the movement of the body down slows the, the thought process down. Then the breathing slows down. It's all inter interconnected, but if you slow down a little bit, everything is, is just much more enjoyable. Brilliant, brilliant. Super, as you say, simple, but so effective and uh, great advice there. Um, what's, Neil, we're nearly there. What's next for you? What's, I, I know we've just talked about slowing down, but you've done the book, <laughs> you're, delivering your, you're delivering your workshops. I suppose what's next or what do you see in the uh, next part of your journey? Yeah, so for me, um, my life is dedicated to, to the breath. You know, to studying the breath, uh, practicing the breath, teaching the breath um, in all the different forms that it comes in. So we have just launched the Breathe O'Neill app, um, which is helping people 
to deepen their knowledge of, of breathing, but also to be able to practice it every day. So it's just, a, you know, these amazing guided breathing sessions, three minute long ones, 40 minute long ones, ones for stress, ones for performance. And it just gives people the chance to, it has to be simple. What I've learned over the years is I used to think that people would, why wouldn't people want to practice breathing every day? And in fact, no one wants to practice breathing every day because it seems like some type of luxury. Um, so I've tried to take all the obstacles out of the way by creating the app. So with a couple of clicks, clicks, people can breathe along with me. So that's the focus is on, you know, getting that app out to more people. So you can go to the website to find the app. But then the bigger thing now in, in launching later in the year is the Blissful Breath Academy, where I'll be teaching people how to, you know, to become uh, breathwork teachers. You know, so for me, this is where um, the real change can happen. I can only be in a certain amount of places in one day. But if there is a, an army of skilled and compassionate breathwork teachers out there, teaching people how to breathe and guiding people through breathing, that's where we can really start to have a big impact. So that's, that's this year. Brilliant. Fantastic. Uh, last two here. Um, if you could have a meal with any five people, Dead or alive, oh. who, who would who would it be? Um, definitely one, two, three, four, maybe two of my grandparents uh, that I didn't, you know, I knew kind of as a child, but don't really didn't know as an adult. Uh, um, no, let's say four of them. Okay, I'll get them. I'll let them all in. Four, yeah. four grandparents, uh, and Bob Marley. Love it! I love it! I love it! That's a, <laughs> be a dynamic conversation. Um, <laughs> be hilarious. Exactly. My grandparents are, are, are all from inner city Dublin, so it'd be hilarious to see them talking to Bob Marley. Absolutely. Um, just any, just for listeners, any book recommendations or podcasts? Obviously, your own book. Give that a shout out. But is there anything that I suppose, I suppose, career, life wise, is there a book that stands out that has helped you? Yeah, there's an incredible book called The Surrender Project. People might be aware of it already. Um, it was quite a big New York Times bestseller maybe 10 years ago. And it's based on this idea that's central to nearly all the major religions and all the philosophies, which is, and this is something I had to learn the hard way, um, is that we have to surrender to what's happening. We, we have no control, really, of what's going on around us. So... As a, as a competitive athlete, we want to control everything. We want to measure everything we want. So the Surrender Project is about an engineer who was learning yoga, learning philosophy, and he, it's about his, his, how he took this idea of surrendering to what's happening. And that when we surrender to what happens and we don't fight it and we let it unfold, that the the marvel the beauty the perfection of the universe presents itself so it's about his his journey through that it's based originally his first book was the untethered soul another big bestseller but the surrender project is fascinating to see how much we we resist what's happening around us and how much we we miss if we don't surrender to it so and that's still a practice for me Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it looks like a must read. Um, so we're just there. Where can people stay connected and I suppose hear about the app and the education and stuff like that? Yeah, so everything is through my website. So breathe with N-I-A-L-L dot com. So breathe with Neil 
where it might look like breathe.nile.com. Um, and you'll find everything about the app. You'll find uh, the Blissful Breath Academy. All that stuff is is on the website, breathewithnial.com. Brilliant. Well, listen, I'm sure I could have chatted you for another few hours. Uh, uh, guys, I'd love to hear some more stories, but thank you so much for jumping on. And I'm sure I'll see you soon at one of your workshops. And as I say, I wish you every success with the new education piece. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. It's always great to, to talk to somebody about these things and uh, keep going. I want to I want to be in the podcast when it's at 150 episodes. Yeah, we'll get you back on. No bother. Thanks, Neil. Thanks very much, Tom. Bye.